All right, let's open it with a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for this new year. Um, we had two weeks off uh, for the holiday, and then we had last week off because of all the storm damage, but we thank you that we're able to be in this room and be, in, be together and continue reading through the book of Romans and talking about what it means. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us your spirit, and uh, we ask, Lord, that you would be with us and open the eyes of our heart. So hear our prayer now in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, it's been a few weeks. Let's talk again about what we're doing here. Uh, we're studying we're studying what book in the Bible? Romans. All right. Um, what there's the book of Romans is gets about as much attention as any of Paul's letters because in some ways it's the most systematic of his treatments of uh, his treatment of the gospel of Jesus of Christianity than the rest of his letters his, the rest of his letters tend to be more situational the book of romans is situational you guys are going to have to help me remember i have my the I couldn't find a battery for the clock this morning, so I, I am keep I got my phone here, so I, I don't want to go too long. Um, the book of Romans is situational, but it's also very systematic. And I think in order to understand really what Paul's focus and center of the book is, we do have to think about the situation of the Romans. And the church um, is mixture Jew and Gentile, but probably overwhelmingly majority Gentile. Now, at our men's group this past week, we were in Genesis 10, which is a chapter in Genesis that is pretty much the genealogy of Noah. So you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and it goes down from there. A few weeks ago, I watched a very interesting video with a couple of uh, people that I follow on YouTube who were talking about, they've been doing a, a story on mythological history. And it's basically a study of most of the histories in the medieval period that many people paid attention to. The Anglo-Saxons, for example, in their mythological history, they say Noah had a fourth son. And you might think, why would Noah have a fourth son? And you say, well, it's not inconceivable historically that perhaps Noah had a fourth son. But most of these medieval and ancient histories have genealogies. And the concern of these genealogies is to try to connect their people, like the Anglo-Saxon people, the Saxons, to people in the Bible. And so you have all of these histories where they, they want to find a connection between themselves out there, the Saxon people living in the, you know, living in the Middle Ages, to the Bible. After they convert to Christianity, they want to know how are we connected to this? And their predominant way of 
focusing on their connection is familial. They're looking for a genealogy with descendants that will get, that will go between the Bible and themselves. Let's say the Saxons. Why would they want this? Yes, they really want to believe in the Bible. They want to be connected. They want to see themselves as participating in the story of the Bible. Now, we don't work that way nearly as much where we're sitting in history. And I think there's some reasons for that. Um, there's two kinds of nationalism. There's ethno-nationalism and there's credo-nationalism. Can you give me, just looking at ethno-nationalism and credo-nationalism, the USA is very much a credo-nationalist nation. What might, I, what might I mean by that? What does it take to be an American citizen? Pledge allegiance to America. If you were born in another country, not born to an American citizen, and you immigrate to the United States legally, you can involve yourself in a process of, listen to the word, naturalization. What do we mean by naturalization? You become a natural citizen. Now, my son, Philip, who was born in the Dominican Republic, is a natural citizen because his parents are American citizens. So he's naturalized through his parents. Naturalization, you become a natural citizen through, you go to these classes. You learn American history. At the end of that, you take a test. How much American history do you know? That's totally unfair. None of us had to take a test to become American citizens, right? <laughs> well, we can think about that. But most of us might not pass that test. Yet we just simply receive citizenship by virtue of hereditary, birth, right? Naturalized citizen. Basically, what they have to do is stand in front of a judge, hold up their hands, and pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and the republic for which it stands. And when someone takes an oath of office, they raise their hand and they pledge allegiance to the king? No. To the Constitution of the United States. And what that means in the United States, you know, at the end of the Civil War, with the 14th Amendment, this was all very important because the key thing was you had to make 
people who were not citizen citizens. At the end of the Civil War, there was a whole group of people that suddenly had to become citizens. Who were they? Slaves. Because slaves are not only not citizens, they're not even considered people. They're considered property. And so that whole struggle is about that issue. But the United States is a credo-nationalist country. You become an American citizen by believing. Credo means to believe. Give me an example of an ethno-nationalist country. Israel, good example. I don't know if it, because Palestinians can become Israeli citizens. But if you look at, let's say, a country like France, part of the reason the French have difficulty with and, and some of these immigrants, some of these European countries really struggle with immigration. Japan, tremendously ethno-national country. China, if you're not Han, and most of us don't pay any attention to that, Han is the basic ethno group, the ruling ethno group of China. If you're not Han, people don't know if you're really. Chinese. Japan, do you know what it takes to immigrate to Japan and to become naturalized? You don't. You can, you know, you probably have to marry in or something like that, but Japan doesn't really take immigrants. That's part of the reason they're having such an aging issue is because a place like the United States, certain a good amount of our population doesn't have children or more than one or two children. And so the United States balances out its demographic via immigration. And that's how you keep systems like Social Security in, in operation because you need all of those workers to pay taxes for those people who live on Social Security. But France, Japan, China, these are all ethno nationalist nations. And so there's a real struggle with, well, other ethne with respect to if you're not French, one of the Franks, can you really be French? If you're not Japanese, do you really have a stake in the Japanese people? And so part of the reason that many of these mythological histories paid so much attention to the genealogies in the Bible is they wanted to say, well, you can't find the Saxons anywhere in the table of the nations in Genesis 10. That's because Noah had a fourth son. And that fourth son traveled to Europe and Noah's fourth son is our father. Okay, this is really important. Because Edie mentioned the modern state of Israel. Now, huge issues in the modern state of Israel with respect to what Israel is about. Because Israel was founded in the aftermath of the Holocaust, which was one of the most famous efforts at Jewish genocide. And the Jewish people wanted to say, never again. And, and what they meant by that was, 
we've had to entrust our future to Germans and French and British and Americans. We don't trust any of these people. We are going to entrust our future to ourselves. We're going to have an army. We're going to have all of this apparatus so that people aren't going to push the Jews around anymore. And so that's the tension in the modern state of Israel. The United States, even though there's sometimes something you'll hear, something like white nationalism, that was a movement that was pretty strong in the 19th and early 20th century to say, to be a real American, you have to be white. Well, obviously, the Civil War made a big statement about that. And then we also have this phrase, Native Americans, because, well, they were here before European colonization. But part of the reality of the United States is that it's always been, at least for as long as the European colonial presence and thinking has been on this continent, it's always been, it could never be an ethno-nationalist entity because there's just way too many ethne. There's no one single ethne that has predominance, preeminence in the United States. Now, obviously, the British and the Anglo-Saxon tradition has a real firm grasp, but many Germans, many Scandinavians, Africans taken involuntarily from Africa, but like the Nigerian church, there's more and more African immigrants coming into the United States. Many of the people from the former, former Spanish colonies, which are very much a mixture of Native American in Central and South America with Europeans, because that whole, you know, indigenous population versus, I mean, all of that. And so in the Americas, about the only way you can have a nation is a credo nationalism. But now, back to the book of Romans. One of the real concerns for, well, you have the Jews, and, well, see, Jews, we have to talk a little bit about that word. Where does that word come from? Nope. Judah. Why would Jews come from Judah? What happened to the nation after Solomon died? It was split. And often we call the northern tribe Israel, and the Bible uses all these, sometimes Ephraim. Uh, who was Ephraim? He's not one of Jacob's sons. Joseph's son, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, well where's the, where are the boundaries to the tribe of Levi? Levi doesn't have territory. They're all throughout. Down below, you have Judah and Benjamin. And that then becomes the southern kingdom, which is often called just Judah. And after the northern kingdom is assimilated into... Need some, need some help, Delphine? Morning, Lil.
After the northern kingdom is assimilated, all you have is Judah. And in the Roman Empire, that, that southern area is called Judea. And, well, the people of Judea are the Jews. That's where the word comes from. But you'll find remnants of the northern tribe that assimilated into the southern tribe. And there's a, there's a huge history back there that we almost pay very little attention to because it's not in the Bible, but that's everything that's going on. Okay, so now the Jews have a relationship with God the God of Israel, okay? Very special relationship. And I've been reading a book by Paul Johnson, A History of the Jews. The story of the Jews throughout world history is one of the most remarkable stories you can find. How on earth they have managed to maintain their own national identity. I mean, another nation we might think about in similar terms might mean the Persians. But if I, if I tell you Persia, a lot of you will say, well, I can't find Persia on the map. Iran, there you go. And so if you talk to Iranians, they will often have a lot of pride about the Persian Empire, because the Persian Empire is quite ancient. And they've managed to keep a degree of ethno-nationalism alive for themselves. But Paul is interested in the God of the Jews, and of course the Jews all the way back to their book, all the way back to Genesis, made astounding claims, unique claims about their God. Because the Jews claimed what? Their particular God is what? The God over all the world. So now, it's been very interesting that as I've as my relational circles have expanded, um, some of the most interesting people that I've become friends with are um, Jews, because I'm discovering all kinds of new things about that whole history. So one of my friends likes to talk about Noahide. He talks about Noahides, and I'm like, well, what's what? What are Noahides? Well, for him, those are. Well, that's how Gentiles can relate to God, by following the covenant of Noah. The covenant of Noah. You go back and you look in your Bible and you find Genesis 9 and you find, oh, and you might have learned this in your old, if you went to Reformed Doctrine class way back when, there's the covenant with Adam. And there's the covenant with Noah, with the rainbow. And if you look, there's a few little stipulations about the covenant with Noah, about shedding blood. And now you, can, you don't have to be vegetarian anymore after Noah. And so my Jewish friend looks and says, well, that's what Gentiles should do. They should follow the covenant of Noah, because that's the covenant to them. And Jews should follow the covenant of the Jews. And now it's really interesting if you read Paul very carefully, and we'll, we'll pick up this theme as we go through the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul, in many ways, sees sort of two covenants, because he talks about these are the requirements placed on the Jews. And then, in Galatia, 
when there's a group of Jewish Christians there in the church, and they're saying to the Gentiles who are uncircumcised, who are not following the Jewish ceremonies, who are not following the Jewish dietary restrictions, you know, if you really wanted to be closer to the God of Israel, why don't you get circumcised? Why don't you follow these dietary restrictions? Why don't you engage in these ceremonies? And Paul says, no, you must not. And, and it's like, the vast majority of men and the little boys in the world that are circumcised these days are not Jews. Is that evil? We think, well, it doesn't really matter. And, and we read Paul sometimes and we kind of get that message. Circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't really matter. Huh. Well, well, why does Paul so angry in the book of Galatians about these Gentile Christians now following the observances. Is, is Paul worried about cultural appropriation? No. Paul in some ways says, well, he's looking at the heart of it and saying, these kinds of practice, the, the, the issue isn't circumcision or uncircumcision, whether you're having ham and cheese sandwiches. Uh, those aren't the issues. The issue is the motivation of your heart, if you're thinking you can use this to somehow get closer to God. And we might think, well, that's complicated too because someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm feeling far from God. What kinds of things do you imagine I might ask? Well, are you coming to church every week? Well, not really. Well, that could be part of the problem. Coming to church every week is how we stay close to God. Oh, okay. Um, are you reading your Bible? No, not really. Well, reading your Bible is part of how we feel close to God. Are you praying? Well, not very often. Well, you know, and so I might recommend that they come to church, that they read their Bible, that they pray. Maybe there's some sinful areas of their life that I'd recommend that they, they, they stop sinning, or they might even be in different areas of their life that I might say, well, you know, this maybe we wouldn't categorize this as a sin, but perhaps you should not do this so much for your spiritual life. Now, nobody would say, well, pastors shouldn't tell people practices that help them feel closer to God. No, that's what pastors do. But what's the problem in Galatia? Well, it, it's sort of, Paul in some ways sees the Gentiles using some of these Jewish practices as idolatrous. What do I mean by that? What is an idol? Something you worship in place of God. It, it's, it's in a sense in our motivation of something to do to put God in our debt. What do I mean by that? What, what would it be to put, let's, let's say I wanted to put Edie in my debt. Now, I, I, I love doing stuff for Edie and Roger. Edie and Roger have been wonderful to me. Um, you know, if I do something nice for Edie and Roger, I don't think they would think I'm trying to put them in my debt. 
But if I wanted to put Edie in my debt, it would, be, in a sense, be try to get, you know, we, we have all kinds of other ways of, you know, twisting their arms. To make Roger or Edie do something for me, they wouldn't freely or eagerly do for themselves or for me on their own. And, and Roger and Edie, that would begin to strain our relationship because they'd be like, well, you know, that's, that's kind, of a, kind of a jerk move Paul made there. He's trying to manipulate us. He, number one, doesn't have enough confidence in our relationship that if he had a need, we wouldn't help. And number two, he's using us to try to get what he wants. And, and we feel something being violated in there. And if we as human beings feel a violation in there, how much more shouldn't God? And this morning at 11 o'clock, we're going to go through the temptations of Christ. That's a big, yeah, that clock doesn't work. We've got 35 minutes. That's a big issue in there. That, well, we don't trust God. We want to manipulate God. And so when Paul talks to the Galatians, Paul is basically seeing in their practice a desire to put God in their debt. Right. Exactly. I'm, I'm really gonna, I'm really gonna make God give me good things because I've got one up on him and I've put him in my debt. And that goes all the way back to the story in the Garden of Eden. Because the whole heart of that fall was the serpent suggesting God's holding out on you. And the posture that you see in Jesus in the, in the, in the temptations in the wilderness is, well, trust in God. And, and for Jesus, that's going to be crucial because you mean I'm going to spend three years with a bunch of disciples that are pretty clueless wrangling with other religious characters in my world, and it's going to arrive at the culmination of a broad-spectrum political agreement and a kangaroo trial and crucifixion. That's the plan? <laughs> and so you can see how the temptations are very much tied into the whole ministry of Jesus. But now, the question in this book about the Romans is, how are the Romans grafted into Christ? Now, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul, there, there's, let me say it this way, there's a big universalizing theme in the book of Romans. In chapters 1, we see very much that the Gentile world, the ethne, it's a mess. God might not have spoken his law from Sinai to them, but there is, in a sense, something like a law built into the world, and the ethne have made a mess of things. Chapter 2 looks at the children of Israel, the Jews. And Paul says, the Jews have made a mess of things. And chapter 3 says what? Kind of brings chapter 1 and chapter 2 together. 
No one is righteous. Humanity has made a mess of things. That's a really big point in his argument because, well, look at the main focus here. What's the relationship between God and the ethne? And between God and the Jews? Well, everyone's made a mess of things. Chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4. We spent a lot of time talking about Abraham. Now, you might look at Abraham and say, well, he's the father of nations. He's the father of the Jews. The Jews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There we have Israel. He's the father of the Jews. Okay. But the big argument in chapter four was. Hmm. There's a funny thing in that Abraham story, the one in Genesis, that Abraham was not made right with God on the basis of, I like the word David Bentley Hart uses, observances. What do we mean by observances? Okay, but of course, Abraham didn't have those, but he had an altar and he made sacrifices. But Paul reads those chapters in Genesis and says, you know what? All the way back to the beginning, when the Lord approached Abraham, Abraham responded to God's invitation to him, God's selection of him, God's election of him with faith. Only later do we get circumcision. In other words, going back to this chart, well, faith is on both sides of the ledger. Paul is making an argument in the book of Romans, trying to help Roman Christians, in a sense, stand on their own with God through Moses? Why not Moses? Moses is on this side of the ledger. Jesus is on both sides. Now, we're at 11 o'clock, we're going through the book of Matthew. And there are two genealogies in the Gospels. We talked about the genealogy in Matthew. Matthew goes from, anybody remember? Abraham to David to Jesus. That's what his genealogy does. That's very important. Why is that important for Matthew? Who is Matthew written to? Jewish Christians. Luke, we know a lot more about Luke than we know about Matthew. Who's Luke? Doctor that traveled with Paul. Luke does a genealogy, ends with Jesus. Who does it start with? Adam. Why does Luke's genealogy go all the way to Adam? Luke is writing predominantly to Gentiles. 
Some of the other differences in the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Matthew will talk about kingdom of heaven. Luke and Mark, written predominantly now, Peter goes to Rome. If Mark is a disciple of Rome, Mark also has a lot of Gentile connections. Matthew, Luke, and Mark talk about kingdom of God. Why would there be that difference between heaven and God? Why? I mean, clearly Luke and Mark seem to, or Luke and Matthew seem to be using Mark. Why would Matthew intentionally keep changing it to heaven? Ever watch a Jew write this? Say, well, what is that? No, it has to be Adonai, Hashem, the name. They just say Hashem often, which just means the name. They don't want to say the name. In some ways, it's a circumlocution. That's right. And so, well, suddenly you begin to understand differences between Matthew and Luke. And, and, and all of this for the ethne, for the Gentiles, is what's our connection to God? How do we find our way back to God? And they're very concerned about lineage. Very concerned about lineage. Think about Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar adopts Octavius as his son. Octavius becomes Caesar Augustus. Octavius is not Julius Caesar's son. Julia, who will marry, I believe, Tiberius. Julia is the mother of Tiberius, I believe. I mean, everyone's paying attention to these genealogies in the ancient world. Because this is how, well, my son Philip becomes an American citizen because his parents are, even if he's born in the Dominican Republic. This is old, old stuff that it's still in our systems, but it's not as much in our systems as it used to be for all sorts of reasons. So now, when we look at um, Romans 5, 12 to the end, Because of this, just as sin entered the world through one man. Okay. Now remember chapters 1 through 3? What's the point of chapters 1 through 3 again? Chapters, right. Chapters 1 is the the Gentiles. Chapter 2 is the Jews. Chapter 3 is the conclusion. No one is righteous. No one can stand before God. No one can keep his law perfectly. No one is righteous. Well, why is that? Well, it's because you've got Adam. And then down the line, you're going to have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, but everyone else, the ethne, you know, you've got Noah in here. And you've got Shem, Ham, and Japheth, um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Paul is making the point now, not only is faith potentially universal through Jesus Christ, now also sin is universal. 
death through sin. So also death spread to all people because all sin. Now, if you look at the other, what we did now four weeks ago, we read through Eugene Peterson's treatment of these verses. And I think it's an excellent treatment. Now remember the message, that's the title of this. What the message is, is basically Eugene Peterson, the Presbyterian minister's um, paraphrase of the Bible. It is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. And if you really want to get a, a good sense of broadly reformed interpretation of the second half of Romans chapter 5, read through the message on it. Peterson really does an excellent job, and that's why we spent the last class walking through the entire section. But I don't want us to just look at Eugene Peterson. I want us to go more broadly. Now, the LEB is a, is a very um, literalistic um, method of translation, and so it has value in that way. Because of this, just as sin entered into the world through one man, death through sin, so also death spread to all people because all sinned. Now, where ancient peoples paid a lot of attention to genealogies, there's a huge focus of attention on, for us, what is the exact mechanism by which sin and then atonement come through to us. Now, you find a lot of debate about atonement, and there's, um, actually, I, I laid all this, is it in today's sermon or last? Because I didn't preach last week's sermon for you. There's parts in there. I've tried to sort of chap, do chapters three for, through four in Matthew together in the sermon this week. But there's Jesus is our model. That's one atonement theory. There's Jesus is our warrior. That's another atonement theory. And then Jesus is our sacrificial substitute. That's another atonement theory. And, and all of these are attempts to get an idea of, well, okay, so Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. So what? Jesus as model, we look at Jesus' life and says, we should be like Jesus. Okay. Now, part of the reason Protestants sort of balk at that one is because of a lot of what happens earlier here in the book of Romans, where Paul makes the point, none of us can fulfill the law perfectly. So Jesus is a good model to follow, but if you're banking on winning acceptance with God by virtue of your moral performance, I've got bad news for you. You're already behind. <laughs> and it's doubtful that you're going to catch up. I'm not saying don't emulate Jesus. I'm just saying, as a strategy, it's got some issues. All right? And the issues are you. <laughs> and me. All right? 
So Jesus is our model. How about Jesus is our warrior? This is an old theme that's sometimes called Christus Victor. And it's a, it's, a, it's a theme you very much find in the Bible where Jesus overcomes Satan. And we find that in the temptations. Jesus goes out into the desert to battle Satan. But there's also Jesus is our sacrificial substitute. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, this one is very controversial today. People don't like it. But I think it's very biblical, and it's deep within our theological church tradition. But there are also all these theories about sin. And I think in some ways, our, our sin theories are analogous to these atonement theories. One is that, well, we've told stories about children who have... Edie spends all day unwinding the modeling of other people's parents. Am I right, Edie? We, the way we come into this world, we learn from our parents. We learn in so many different ways. We're not even conscious of the ways. And, you know, we can look at Delphine and Lily back there. You know, they might look at each other and say, hey, boy, there's a lot of difference between us. But there's also a lot of similarities. <laughs> the thing is, Delphine can also look to her father and Delphine could say, yeah, I got some Lil in me, but I also got some Earl in me. <laughs> and that's true too. And they've even got other ancestors in them. So that's why people look at these genealogies because, well, we inherit stuff from our ancestors. And part of how we inherit, we have nature versus nurture. A lot of that is nurture. People model things for us and we emulate that. So nurture. The other one is nature, which is, well, there's hereditable things that we get via biology. Myself, my father, and my son Jared are all kind of the same size. Why is that? Well, biology. I inherited my stature from my father. I'm not sure where he got it from. His ancestors were short, but my Philip and Ben are about six foot, six foot one. Jared, six foot four, six foot five, just like me. Why Jared and not Ben and Philip? That's just how genetics goes. And so do we inherit sin from nurture? Yeah. Do we inherit sin from nature? Yeah. Are there more ways we inherit sin? Probably. Associations. It's sort of like nurture, but not from our parents, but from others. Bad company creates bad character. There's that saying. So a lot of the question is a lot of there's there's so much theological writing about chapter five. So much of it has to do with that. And Paul doesn't go into, just like with these atonement theories, the Bible doesn't spell all these things out for us. It just says, guess what? Because of this, just as sin entered in the world through one man and death through sin, so also death spread to all people because all sin. 
Now, there is a fierce debate that is going on about the relationship between sin and death. And the debate has a lot to do with things like, well, what do we mean by death? Is did cellular death, and I don't mean your cell phone, did cellular death come as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion? That's difficult because they know part of how our body works, the skin that we have, the, 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 this, this top layer of skin you have is dead. What do you mean it's dead? It's dead. It's dead skin cells. According to our definition of cellular death, our hair, well, I, I can't do that. Our hair is dead. The follicles, now if the follicles die, you get this. But apparently the follicles underneath are doing very well. Um, but the hair itself is dead. So what's the what do we mean by death? And what's its relationship with sin? Paul doesn't go into that with the categories we want. And that then causes a lot of theological debate, which we're not going to get into. For until the law, now this next section is also really complicated. Because for until the law, sin was in the world. Now that's important because when Paul says the law here, he, he sometimes means the law of Moses. And he sometimes means what I talked about last time, the law behind the law of Moses. So it's really tricky. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not charged to anyone's account when there is no law. Okay, let's talk about speeding on I-5. Let's say, some of you remember, Let's say back when I-5 was new and it wasn't open yet, you have this really nice long stretch from south of town here. You've got a long, straight stretch of I-5. Let's say the police have little barricades up. Oh, I-5's not open yet. There's no, there's no speed limits on I-5. It's just a strip of cement. What do you think a whole bunch of young men wanted to do? <laughs> now. There's no speed limit. They weren't breaking the law. Like if you do 120 from Elk Grove to downtown today, 120, you're breaking the law because of the posted speed limit. But are they breaking the law? And, and so it, it's sort of like that before the law of Moses. You have, remember we talked about the immediate law? And the mediated law, the, the signs are mediated law. The, the danger of having a, a, fa a fatal accident is the immediate law. And so there's this section there. For sin was not charged on one accounts when there is no law. So before I-5 is open, is open with speed limits governed by the state of California, patrolled by the state troopers, you're not going to get a speeding ticket. And if, if someone would, before I-5's open, see you racing there and pull you over and give you a speeding ticket, you should take that person to court and say, huh, 
you can't give me a speeding ticket. There is no law on this road. And they'd probably say, oh, but you went around all of the barriers that said do not enter. That's the law you broke. <laughs> can't give you a speeding ticket, but trespassing. So I'm going to cite you for trespassing or reckless endangerment or some other law. But, but that's kind of the point here is that, well, the, the Mosaic law wasn't there. But again, remember the total goal here of the book. How are Romans connected to God? And how should they live? And how should they worship? Those are the questions. Death reigned from, ah, why do we go back to Adam in chapter 5 when we went back to Abraham in chapter 4? We go back to Adam again because our concern is this question of the relationship between the God of Israel and the Romans. We have to go back to Adam, just like Luke goes to Adam. But death reigned from Adam until Moses. And why do we mention Moses? Well, that's the particular Jewish thing even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. Now again, for many of you, the amount of theological conversation around these verses is likely unimaginable for all of the reasons that I note down here. Now, why, why do we pay so much attention in the modern world to figuring out the mechanism behind sin and atonement? We have in our culture a real preoccupation with mechanism. Look at that word, mechanism. What word does it remind you of? Mechanic, machines. This goes back in some ways to deism, which is sort of God as machine. Why, why would we like to think about God as a machine? What advantage do we have over machines? We have, we have way more flexibility over machines. Once we learn the machine, we gain the system and we wield it. Now, there is nothing wrong with trying to figure out models of atonement and models of inheritance of sin. And pastorally, that's a really good thing to know because there's a lot that goes on in terms of sins that we, you know, if you're pastorally, if you're meeting, I mean, again, Edie's whole, not whole, but a lot of her vocation is really about the nurture model of sin inheritance. Someone finally comes to Edie because their life is so broken down, their relationships are in such a mess. 
and Edie sits down with them and starts to work with them. And, well, why did you respond to this person in this way? Undig, dig, dig, dig. Well, that's how my mother always responded in similar situations. And I picked up that pattern. How did that go for your mom? Well, not real well. Well, maybe you should try a new pattern. Let's try it together. And it's really hard to unlearn something and to relearn a new thing. I mean, that's all about the mechanisms of sin transmission. But this quest for mechanism, you can really you can see it is in many ways sort of idolatrous, isn't it? Because if we can turn, if we can discover the mechanisms for sin, well then maybe I cannot sin. Oh, that's that's a wonderful thing. I'd rather have you not sin. But it's very similar to what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. Because in a sense, it's saying, I'd like to, Flannery O'Connor has this great line about this guy in one of her stories. He thought that he could avoid Jesus by avoiding sin. And what, he, what she means there, and I probably got the quote wrong. He thought he could avoid needing Jesus by not sinning. And that's really what Paul's dealing with in the book of Galatians. Because the point is, um, number one, I certainly want you to sin less. I don't have an argument with that. But avoiding Jesus is not a good strategy. In fact, in a way, it's using all of these gifts of God, which is what idolatry is, to not need God. And then you're right there back with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so these, these, mechanistic, these mechanistic preoccupations that we have, they can be really dangerous. But you see what Paul is doing is, okay, but death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of the one who is to come. Who's the one who is to come? Jesus. Oh, okay. Now we have Adam, and we have Jesus. And now we have, well, this is exactly what Paul is going to make. But Paul is making in it, so why, again, why is Paul not using Moses here? Because he's talking to Gentiles. He has to go all the way back to Adam. And he's saying, remember chapters 1 through 3? Adam, you know, Moses doesn't really deal finally and fully with the problem we inherit from Adam. How exactly we inherit it? Too complex for us probably to distill into one model. Jesus, so we might talk about sin inheritance here, and we'll talk about atonement here. We say, okay, Jesus as model. 
Jesus as warrior. He's our victor. He's our champion. Jesus as sacrifice. Sin as nature. Sin as nurture. Something, there's, there's an analogy behind what happens through Adam to us as what happens through Jesus to us. Now again, in our theology, in our work in the church, in our work outside the church of theology, we deeply want to know what these models are. And in fact, one might argue all of human civilization is a quest for this. Because Edie, on one hand, is unraveling a whole bunch of nurture sin. Psychiatrists, doctors, um, social workers, politicians, lawyers are trying to unravel, you know, the summary of both, or sometimes physicians, the nature sin. And the problem is that there's probably way more categories down below here that are going on that we just haven't been able to see. But Adam is a type of who is to come. Now, part of the reason that I often put up Tom Holland's book, Dominion, is because I think Dominion is a really cool argument that Jesus has been colonizing the world in ways that we can't even see. Because Tom Holland, 2,000 years later, as a result of all sorts of things, comes to the, you know, and he's still sort of wavering as to the question of his own faith, but he comes to the realization that he is so deeply a product of Jesus, even though all of the ways that we look at Jesus like this, he's really sketchy on. Jesus has come to him through history, through government, through moral development, that many people who don't even think about Jesus, Jesus got in there. Now, when I say Jesus got in there, that's a little bit inaccurate. It might be a little more accurate to say, the Holy Spirit has been working through history since Jesus until now in ways that we don't even know. And just like that poor person who comes to Edie looking for reprieve because she learned things from her mother, she didn't even know she was learning. We have been receiving things from Jesus we didn't even know we were receiving. And even people like I always use the poor guy. I should probably find another, but he's a public figure. Sam Harris, who developed for himself a really nice living, making sure everybody knew he was exactly the opposite of Christian. There's so much Christianity built into Sam Harris. And he doesn't want to, he doesn't like the footnotes. And that is what Paul is saying here is that, well, he continues, the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the trespass of one, the many died, 
by much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many. Now he's saying this to the Romans who are just at the beginning of this. And again, if you read Tom Holland's book, you realize we're 2,000 years into this. And now think for a while, okay, what if, in fact, we are everlasting? C.S. Lewis plays a lot on this in Mere Christianity. Because if you're everlasting and you start here and you just keep on a path to destruction and you're everlasting, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. But if you're on a path and then suddenly Jesus interrupts your path and you start going this way, it's going to get better and better and better and better. And maybe you die here or you die here like the thief on the cross. But in either case, this is a very hopeful story. This is a very hopeful story. And the whole point here is for the Romans, and not just for the Romans, but for the Anglo-Saxons and the Africans and the Asians and the Native Americans and the Europeans. All, through Christ, have hope for this. doesn't matter about your bloodline. And so, you know, in a weird way, when we talk about credo-nationalism, that's kind of what Paul is saying here. By faith in Christ, chapter 4 and chapter 5, Adam's trajectory will change. And it's a lot better than the downward slope. All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. Lord, we don't believe that Christ is merely a tool by which we can save ourselves. We believe Christ is the revelation of your grace grabbing on to us. So, Lord, we thank you for this gift. We thank you for the years of working through all of the questions of this gift that we are heirs of. And we anticipate the everlastingness of the improvement that you are placing us on. Thank you, Lord, for this gift, and may we willingly participate in its growth. Hear our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.